Virginia. I'm Chris Lang for the Virginia State Golf Association, and welcome to this episode of the Golf of the Commonwealth podcast. Last week, the USGA announced some of its most significant and sweeping changes to the qualifying structure for several of its national championships in more than 20 years. You can read the full press release detailing the changes at vsga.org. Today's guest is one of the major players in authoring these changes, Brent Palladino, who is the USGA's Senior Director of Championship Administration. The biggest change coming in 2024, winners of four Allied Golf Association championships will earn automatic entry into their respective national championships. Based on our history of power rankings with our amateur, women's amateur, and junior stroke play championships, we feel confident that the winners of those events in 2024 will likely earn exemptions into their corresponding USGA championships. One event we're making changes to in hopes of gaining that exemption as early as 2024 is the Junior Girls Championship, which will go from 36 holes to 54 holes in 2023. That'll be a three-day event versus a two-day event as it has been in the past. The goal there is to add World Amateur Golf Rankings points to that championship, as well as increasing the championship status with the AJGA. That event will be held in July at Orchard Creek. Check out vsga.org if you or your daughter are interested in playing that event. That presents a huge opportunity for our players here in Virginia. Think of it like March Madness. Much like the conference tournament winners have an opportunity to play their way into the NCAA tournament, the winners of those VSGA championships will be able to play their way into a USGA championship at the state level. Very cool. Long-timers in the Commonwealth might remember Brent from his college playing days where he was a two-time All-Colonial Athletic Association selection at William & Mary. He was part of the CAA's 25th anniversary team in 2009, a 2008 Ping Mid-Atlantic All-Region player, and a three-time participant in the U.S. Amateur Championship. He also continues to compete in the PGA Professional Championship when his busy schedule allows. Brent also has a background of working for two allied golf associations, the Connecticut State Golf Association and Golf House Kentucky, so he has a rich understanding of the relationship between AJAs like the VSGA and the USGA. Brent shared a lot of great details of this new initiative, along with some background on his journey into golf. Let's dive right into our conversation with Brent Palladino. All right, Brent, thanks so much for joining us today here on the Golf and the Commonwealth podcast. Yeah, absolutely, Chris. Looking forward to uh, spending a few minutes here. Yeah, well, before we get into the the changes in the USGA qualifying that we, we want to talk about, and I know our listeners want to hear about, um, let's get to know you a little bit. I know that you grew up in Connecticut, correct? That's correct. And and then how did you end up at William and Mary? Yeah, it's um, you know it was as I was kind of looking at uh, schools, you know, during my uh, junior career and, and trying to you know find somewhere that um, that I could play college golf at a, at a high level. Um, I really, you know, kind of stumbled on William Mary, um, you know, obviously a, a really good academic school, but um, the opportunity to, to play um, to play college golf in a, a little bit warmer climate uh, was certainly appealing. Um, you know, growing up in Connecticut, uh, our, our season was definitely cut short, uh, you know, probably from Thanksgiving, you know, through March. It, it just was was really hard to to, um, to play and um, you know, it's a little bit different now in 2023, there's obviously there's simulators and things like that. It, um, you know, going back to when I was playing junior golf, which was a long time ago, it doesn't feel like that long ago. Um, you know, there just wasn't really those, those opportunities. So, um, you know, in the, in the winter months, I mean, we, we played hockey outside or we would, 
you know, trying to find ways to, to keep busy, but you really, you really kind of hung up the clubs for th for three or four months. And it was really hard to be competitive. Um, just in junior golf, it was just really hard to, um, you know, play against, you know, play against guys that were, were playing 12 months out of the year or just able to play in practice. So um, I definitely knew that I, I wanted to go South, um, you know, somewhere um, where, you know, you had a little bit more of an opportunity to play all year. Um, but academics was really important and, um, you know, just fell in love with, with Williamsburg um, in the area. Um, it just felt like it was, it was a perfect kind of perfect fit for me um, going to, to uh, you know, to Virginia where you could definitely play, you know, 12 months out of the year. We do have the uh, the full year posting season, which is nice. <laughs> Our neighbors in Maryland, unfortunately, don't. So they come over and see us uh, every once in a while in the winter, which is nice. But uh, yeah, what did you study at Wayman Mary? Uh, so I was a computer science major, actually, um, and um, was definitely uh, probably in the minority as far as athletes are concerned in, in that department. But it was um, it was a good opportunity for me to kind of, um, you know, marry my skills of you know, my, my interest in, in um, you know, computers and computer programming and, um, you know, was just fortunate that, uh, that I was able to, to do that while, while playing college golf. Yeah. Um, what were some of your favorite memories of your, your time in Williamsburg? Yeah, it's, uh, there's a lot to choose from. I mean, it's, it was, it was such a, a great place for me and uh, kind of what I was looking for, you know, relatively small school of, you know, 5,000, 6,000 students, but, um, you know, just, just being a part of, of a team um, in that team environment. I mean, there was, there was so many great memories, um, you know, from our time, you know, traveling kind of up and down the East Coast and playing in events. And um, my senior year, I was fortunate enough to, to win, um, win an event that we were playing at in South Carolina. And um, just those, I think just those memories of just, you know, traveling and bonding with, with our team, I would say that, you know, for the most part, everyone on our team, uh, I still stay in touch with it. Um, you know, we all go to each other's weddings and, um, we're just, we're just a really close group. And that was, you know, I graduated 2009, so that's, you know, almost 15 years ago. And, and again, we, we still stay in touch, um, pretty regularly. So just, I think it's hard to pick one memory, but I think just, you know, I think back to my time in, at William Mary and, and playing college golf, it's, um, just the, the friendships that you make, um, you know, is you just spend so much time together, um, between practice and traveling and, um, workouts and things like that. That just just being being together with that group. It was you know some of my best friends again till this day that uh, that I that I made down there, and it was just a lot of fun. Do you keep up with the program still today? Yeah, I do. It's um, they've, they've got a, a new coach. Um, he's been there about two years now. Tim Pemberton, who um, he he played. Um, he graduated right before I got to William Mary, so we we kind of miss each other um, in that sense, but. I got to know him a little bit just from my time at, at William Mary and, um, you know, stayed in touch with him periodically and, and super excited to, to hear that he got the, um, the new job as the head coach at, at, um, at William Mary. And, um, so yeah, I try to stay in touch with him a little bit, help him with where I can, um, you know, if he's looking at, you know, recruits that are, that are in the Northeast and, um, you know, again, just try to help him here where I can. Um, and yeah, the program is, you know, since I graduated is I think continually gotten better, um, which is great to see and, and some of the resources that they've they've been able to get and and um, has has really been I think really helped them a lot and um, you know it's obviously college golf is super competitive and um, especially for a, a mid major trying to go up against um, you know the, the big conference schools is tough but um, you know I think that they've they've done really well especially the last couple of years to 
you know, continually try to recruit, uh, recruit the best players that they possibly can uh, and compete at the highest level. Yeah, Tim was around at uh, Country Club of Petersburg back in 2021 when Jimmy Taylor won the uh, BSJ right. Amateur Championship, and I know he was the the first player from William and Mary to win that. And I know it was a big, That's big right. deal, of pride, a point of pride for the tribe. So for sure, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, you know, did you give a lot of thought to playing professionally after school, or was, or was the PGM program or the or, or going for your PGA membership the the, the real priority for you? Yeah, it's uh, you know right after college, I, I turned professional and played for probably about three years, I would say, um, kind of on and off. And it was tough. I mean, it, turning professional and, um, you know, playing professionally <laughs> sounds great. Um, but when it comes to, you know, the resources that you need and, um, you know, coming from a, a single parent household, obviously we didn't have a, a ton of money to be able to, to kind of front my uh, desire to play. So I was trying to, you know, play a little bit. Uh, I had a few people helping me out here and there and, and then, you know, trying to work a little bit at a golf course and, um, it was just hard. And, um, you know, I kind of look back and, and those were those were great days for a lot of reasons. But, um, you know, I, I have no regrets about kind of transitioning my, um, you know, my professional career to, to something else. And, um, you know, feel like I, I love golf and love playing playing golf and, and still playing at a, at a high level. But, um, you know, I feel like I, I've had the opportunity to make make a much bigger impact um, on the game um in the, the kind of the career path that i, that I chose so uh, i played for a few years and then um you know as i was kind of working at a, at a golf course kind of transitioned into more of a, a professional role there and that's when i um, got my class a pga membership and um, even though i don't work at a green grass club anymore uh, I, I still um you know kind of i kept my class a membership and um you know proud proud pga member yeah I know that you had some time in the AGA world before going to the USGA. I mean, how does that, you know, your time in Connecticut and your time at Golf House Kentucky, how does that kind of shape your your vision of the relationship between the USGA and the Allied Golf Associations? Yeah, it's, um, you know, I think there's there's a lot of um, a lot of USGA staff that, that come from an AGA background, but but in particular, um, just with, with our involvement um, in running USGA qualifying and um, being involved in USGA championships, there's such a a close tie to our Allied Golf Associations. Um, and, you know, I think having that that experience working at, um, you know, call it a, a small or, or relatively small AGAs in, in Connecticut and Kentucky, um, having that experience and understanding a lot of the challenges, I think has, has really helped me um, and hopefully helped our organization, um, you know, make some, make some relatively dramatic changes to qualifying that, um, again, hopefully helps the associations and helps the players. So, I think having the background, um, working in those associations, seeing the, the challenges as far as you know scheduling qualifiers and and the resources and conducting those qualifiers, and then having played in those same qualifiers for a number of years, um, you can I, I think I can certainly understand um, a few different perspectives that that hopefully again has has helped us um, you know make some positive changes to to making it, it more sustainable in the in the long term. Well, tell us a little bit about your role with the USGA and everything that goes into that uh, uh, in the competitions department. Yeah, absolutely. So I um, I oversee our, our championship administration function, and um, probably the easiest way to describe is is championship administration function oversees all of our in house admin of our championships. So that's everything from <clears throat> entries to exemptions to obviously qualifying um, equipment, uh, really all of the. The in-house admin. So we take a, a field of, of call it 10,000 entrants for the U.S. Open. 
Um, we take that from 10,000 down to 156 and then, um, you know, essentially hand off the, the full field to the championship director on site that conducts the, the, the championship on site. Um, along with that, we're, we're very closely connected to um, the inside the ropes of all of our championships. And so our team will, will be on site at championships in a variety of capacities. Um, you know, I was on site last year for the U.S. Open helping with golf course setup. Um, I was at the U.S. Girls Junior in a, a rules and competition uh, capacity. So there's definitely a lot of crossover, um, you know, while our, our primary function is is mostly in-house admin. Um, we definitely, our team certainly crosses over a lot into, um, you know, helping conduct our other championships. And, um, you know, something that I, I, I was a little bit familiar with, but didn't really quite understand until I got to the USGA. I mean, the, the USGA itself is, is an organization of only 300 people. Um, I think people think of the USGA as this big, large organization, which obviously it certainly is. Um, but our full-time staff is only about 300 people. And, you know, our entire championships department is about 25 people um, that run all of our amateur championships, all the inside the rope for our open championships. Obviously, there's a huge component um, aside from our department that runs, you know, like the U.S. Open, Women's Open in terms of ticketing and merchandising and um, all the fan experience. But just in terms of the competition for the Opens and then uh, really the A to Z of all of our amateur championships, um, you know, it's really about 20 to 25 people that really do everything. Um, so we're a really, really close, tight-knit group, um, you know, in some ways, you know, a lot like a college golf team where we're traveling together and, um, you know, really get to know each other pretty well. Um, you know, when you're on the road for, uh, I mean, some folks will be on the road for five, six weeks straight, but um, just for one championship, I mean, typically you're on the road for 13 or 14 days at that championship. And, you know, our entire staff there is, is maybe five, six people. Um, a lot of it's committee driven, volunteer driven. So in terms of a staff, you get to, to know each other pretty well um, and just share a lot of dinners and uh, late nights and early mornings together. So it's, it's a really tight, close knit group. And, um, you know, in terms of my time at the USGA, I would say that's probably my favorite part of it is just getting to to be involved um, with our championships and getting to know that the individuals um, on our team and in our department. So um, kind of a long winded answer, but it's, it's like I said, a lot, like uh, a lot of ways, a lot like a college golf team. You're uh, you're a, a tight close knit group. Yeah. I understand that completely. And I know exactly what you're talking about. The, the, just the fun part of being with your, your staff and tournament staff out at championships for a full week and going to dinner all the time and meeting the, Volunteer rules officials is kind of one of the, the coolest parts of the job, honestly. Gets you out of the office and reminds you what, what what you're doing this for, right? You know? For sure. Yeah, absolutely. It's um yeah, it's definitely a, a lot of long nights uh and early mornings for sure. But um, you know, having having folks to kind of go to battle with and and be a part of it is is uh really what what keeps you going. I know that you uh outside of the USJ, you still run the uh, the Northern Junior, correct? That's correct. Um, yeah. And I understand that that's got a pretty personal connection for you. Can you just kind of take us through that and that, what that tournament means to you? And yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's probably hard to, hard to describe it in a, in a short amount of time, but we, we started the, the tournament 21 years ago um, in memory of my grandfather, who was the one that got my brother and I into the game of golf. Um, and really when we started 21 years ago, we were, we were still in high school um, and um, you know, obviously had some, some help to, to begin that event and, um, for the first couple of years where you were playing in it, but it really started as a kind of a one day memorial junior tournament. Um, and then once I graduated college and um, kind of really started to explore my passion for tournament administration, we, we really kind of transformed it into a two day event. 
Um, you know, honestly, our, our vision was really kind of within New England and, and having it, and we, we felt like if we ever got someone flying in to play in the event, that would be like the ultimate uh, dream come true. And, um, you know, fast forward now to where we are today, we have, uh, you know, I would say that one of the strongest independent junior tournaments in the country, um, you know, we get players from from all over the country uh, internationally, and um, it's it's such a fun uh fun week. It's, it's a long week, obviously, uh, anytime you're involved in running a, a high level, uh, junior tournament or amateur event, it's, it's a long week, but, um, we have a great group of people that, that are part of the event. And, you know, while it, it kind of started as a tournament in, in memory of my grandfather, it's, it's transformed into so much more. Um, and we have, you know, such a great group of people that, that, um, you know, are dedicated to making the event the best it can be. And, and that group of people is is really you know folks who all play junior golf, amateur golf. Um, some play professionally, and um, I think we all kind of look at it as a, as a way to give back to junior golf. Um, you know, I would say of our committee, the majority of which played college golf, and and they probably wouldn't be where they are today without that experience, without that opportunity. And so I think we all kind of look at it as a way to to give the next generation that opportunity and. You know, being from the Northeast, there's not a lot of um, high-level junior events that you can play in without traveling. Um, you know, having grown up in Connecticut, it's it's a lot of times where you're getting on the airplane or taking a 12-hour drive to Virginia or North Carolina to play an event. So we felt like we we had an opportunity to to fill that void for for players in um, you know in New England to play in in a high-level event, but then also. Um, again, just give back to junior golf and provide that, that experience. So, you know, I would say our, our mission statement is, is providing a, a PGA tour experience for each and every player. And so whether it's, um, through leaderboards or online scoring or standard bears, um, we just try to make it, uh, feel like you're playing in a PGA tour event and, and for maybe some of the players, maybe the best event that they've ever played in. And that's, that's really what it's all about. No, that's really cool. I, I w will mention that one of the past champions on the girls' side is from Virginia, Elizabeth uh, Bosey, who won yeah, our junior girls' championship right. back in the mid 2010s, 2015, maybe. I think yeah, we'll say it was 2014, maybe. Yeah, somewhere yeah. there. But uh, yeah. yeah, it's like I said, it, we never dreamed that we would have players, you know, beyond New England playing and um, to see where it is now. Where we had our girls' champion last year was from Nevada, our boys' champion was from Florida. and um, you know, our field this year is, is already shaping up to be strong. And so it's, like I said, it's a long week. It's, it's a week where all of us use our, that's what we use our PTO for. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's definitely not a, a paid, uh, a paid vacation by any means. It's, um, it's a working vacation. So we, uh, but again, it's, it's kind of like our one opportunity that we feel like we can give back to junior golf because it's, it's got the game of golf and junior golf did so much for all of us that, um, kind of our one opportunity to, to show our appreciation for it. Yeah. Um, we'll shift gears now into the into the USGA uh, qualifying changes here and wanted to ask, first of all, how long has this been in the works and and, and what was kind of the impetus at the, U, at the USGA's level to want to make this change? Yeah, it's, you know, I would say it's it's been probably about 16 or 17 months that we've been um, that we've been working on on the changes that were that were just put forth a few weeks ago. Um, you know, the impetus, you know, I would say for, there's, there's certainly a few levels to it. Um, you know, but I think the, the crux of it is just looking at the long-term sustainability for USJ qualifying. Um, we have 678 sites currently that we conduct across the country in a, in a pretty short window. Um, you know, really, 
uh, May to September is really the majority of our qualifying sites. And so, you know, you look across the country and, um, and certainly not with every association, but a lot of associations has become very challenging for them to, to secure golf courses um, and have the resources to conduct qualifying, um, you know, with the, with the great um, growth in the game of golf over the last couple of years. Um, more AGAs are conducting more events for a variety of different demographics, which is, is fantastic to see. There's uh, more women's events, more junior events, um, you know, diverse events that, that are taking place and um, all of which are, are huge positives to the game, to the associations. But um, I, I can certainly speak firsthand from my experience that doesn't always come with additional resources to run those events. And so, um, you know, as we look at our own championships and our own qualifying structure and the um, you know, I wouldn't say burden, but the the um, the resources that we require from associations to run our qualifying, um, we just felt like looking out five, ten years from now, um, it's hard to imagine that the model that we currently have is is, is sustainable in the long term. Um, our entries every year grow by between three and five percent, and so if you kind of extrapolate that out um, ten years from now, instead of six hundred and seventy eight qualifiers, we could be having. 800, 900 qualifiers. And, um, you know, is that really sustainable? Because um, there certainly aren't more golf courses being built at that at that um, that rate. And, uh, you know, AGA staff members are not being added at that rate. And so, um, you know, we felt like there's, there's maybe an opportunity for us to um, really look at the model and figure out how can we make it better and how can we make it more sustainable. And, um, you know, I think where we, we started with looking at it from that lens, I think we also... Um, then kind of looked at it from how can we empower the associations to and use their own events that they're currently conducting um, and really look to elevate those events. And, um, you know, I think for me personally, it's probably one of the most exciting pieces of this um, initiative is um, the opportunity to recognize state and AGA amateur champions, junior champions, women's amateur champions um, in a meaningful way and, and providing that pathway for them to get to a national championship. Um, you know, I think for us, if you look ahead 10, 15 years from now, I think we all envision those championships being the primary pathway. Whereas, you know, instead of having 96 U.S. Amateur qualifiers, um, you know, what we've put forth is around 45, you know, maybe 15 years from now, maybe that's only 20. And maybe we're using uh, state amateurs as really the, the qualifiers to get to our national championships. I think that the power that that's going to provide to our associations, to those events. Um, again, going back to what we were just talking about with junior golf, um, the opportunity for players in your state to be able to play a high level event uh, that's ranked really high without having to travel, without having to get on an airplane will be, um, will pay dividends to those players um, far beyond USGA qualifying. So I think that, um, you know, for us, while, while certainly we'll be recognizing a lot of those champions and providing that opportunity for them to get to a national championship. I think the ancillary benefit of empowering and elevating those state amateur championships, junior championships, women's championships, um, the, the impact on that I think will go beyond just the USGA championships that we're providing those exemptions for. Um, and again, I think the hope is that those championships become some of the strongest in the country. A lot of them, are, but not all of them. And I think that, um, you know, the opportunity to, to have those be recognized as some of the premier events in the country, I think th there is that opportunity. I mean, those players exist, um, certainly in Virginia. I mean, tons of, of really, really strong players and 
you know, just based on how the, the schedule is, the landscape of amateur golf. Not, I'm sure a lot, a lot of them um, have choices to make, and and sometimes you know maybe the Virginia amateur comes by the wayside, and that's um, something that we would like to change and, and have it be that it's it's the one must play event for them on their schedule. That um, there's that exemption on the line, but it's it's such a strong event that they they can't miss it. So I think that's kind of where we we looked at it from, and and I think the hope is that it's it becomes again less qualifying sites for our, our association partners, uh, less of a burden on their on their associations, their member clubs. Um, but again, I think that the ancillary benefit with that, and wouldn't even call it an ancillary benefit, a, a strong benefit is is elevating those state AGA amateurs and, and raising those events up to a point where, uh, I mean, we're gonna be so excited to have all 50 state amateur champions in our field in 2024. I mean, that's certainly gonna be a story to tell um, you know, for us and, and, you know, across all of golf is that, you know, all 50 states are represented by their state amateur champions. I think that's just going to be a, a really powerful story to tell. Yeah, I'm glad you said that, too, because I know we had we've had some situations in Virginia where we've had guys say and, and, and ladies too say, well, you know, we want to play in your amateur, but we need wagger points. We need to go down to the north and south because it's happening at the same time. And I know that we've had situations where we've had to move our women's amateur championship around to different parts of the schedule to try to avoid the scheduling conflicts. So I think just having that, that access and that path for the, for everybody in the state of Virginia is going to be so huge. So it's, it's a very, very much a welcome change. Yeah. And it's, it's hard. I mean, you know, for those players, um, the junior or the, the summer schedule is, is so compact that um, it's really hard to find open weeks. Um, and I think everyone that's, that's played golf and played competitive golf can understand, you know, obviously there's always choices to make, but I think anything that we can do to help, our AGA partners elevate their own events, um, again, to make those must-play events. Um, you know, they may never be as strong as the, the Northeast AM or the North and South AM just because they're, um, you know, geogra geographically limited um, to who could participate. But at the same time, um, you know, I think, I believe that those those events should be the number one events in their state. And the, the event that if you grew up in Virginia, you play golf in Virginia, that's the one event that you, you can't miss. And, so, and I think that, you know, there's a role that we could play in that, which which hopefully we can. I think that uh, anything we can do to help that um, will be a positive across the board. So going to the local qualifying model for the U.S. Amateur, kind of similar to what we've got for the U.S. Open, obviously not the 36-hole uh, second day and final qualifying, but um, how did that come about and, and, and how does that kind of change the equation for things? Yeah, it's, um, you know, I would say it's probably the most significant change in terms of um, you know, how qualifying will be will be perceived by players um, and, you know, how they will go kind of go through the process to get to the U.S. Amateur in 2024. Um, you know, the U.S. Amateur, as it currently stands, we have 96 qualifiers all over the country. Um, and that window is typically in the month of July, which um, for our associations, for host clubs around the country is probably the busiest month of golf, um, you know, of the entire year. And so, um, again, kind of going back to, you know, the, the initial kind of impetus for what prompted these changes, I would say that um, almost universally across the country for associations, getting the U.S. Amateur qualifier was the hardest. Uh, it's, it's obviously timing wise very difficult. Uh, as it currently stands, it's a 36 hole qualifier um, and trying to find a host club that, that is willing to host that qualifier at a, and in a club that, um, you know, that meets the standards that you want for a USA Amateur qualifier, uh, proved to be more and more difficult. Uh, I've been with the USGA uh, three and a half years, and in, in that three and a half years, I've seen 
seen it, uh, you know, going back to my time uh, in Kentucky or Connecticut, um, it's, it's clearly gotten harder and harder to get that site. Uh, along with that, um, U.S. Amateur entries every year continue to grow. So this past year, we had about 7,500 players sign up for the U.S. Amateur uh, across 96 sites. Um, again, if you kind of do the math and keep, keep growing and keep expanding, um, we're going to have to add more and more sites to make it sustainable. Um, and really the problem with the U.S. Amateur, um, you call it a problem, but, but the problem with growing that and going from 96 sites to 100 to 120 sites is we run out of spots pretty quickly. Um, you know, anyone that's played in U.S. Amateur qualifying knows it's typically 84 guys for two spots, pretty much all over the country. Uh, a few exceptions here and there, but for the most part, you, you pretty much know that it's going to be 84 guys for two spots. Um, it's pretty tough odds. And, uh, you know, I think we look at that and say, you know, there's, there could be a site that has three, four, five strong players, certainly in Virginia. Um, and you look at that site and you know that three of them are not making it through no matter how well they play. So um, it, it's, I would say part of what prompted the, the two-stage qualifying was was that and just looking at the, the overall mathematical odds of qualifying and how can we make that better and how can we make sure that more of the top players are advancing through qualifying and um that's where we looked at, you know, the two-stage model that we have for the U.S. Open. And, um, you know, really what that's going to do in the positives with that is obviously there's going to be, um, you know, fewer local sites and fewer qual final qualifying sites. But for those final qualifying sites, um, we're currently planning on having 19 of those around the country. Um, there's going to be an average of about nine spots per qualifier. Um, so while those final qualifiers will probably be stronger than a typical USA Amateur qualifier as it stands today, um, I think the majority of players, if not all the players, would say I'd rather play for nine spots than two spots. Um, and so the opportunity for us to um, have a more realistic opportunity for players to go through qualifying um, and earn a spot and make sure that um, you know the right players are getting through. And, and with that as well, we'll be able to have a little more flexibility with strength of field and allocating those spots to to maybe some of the stronger sites similar to what we do for the us open um it just provides that flexibility that we we just currently don't have um you know when we do uh run the allocation and the math for us amateur it's uh it's pretty much just you can pretty much pencil it in it's going to be 84 for two uh pretty much around the country so having that flexibility will be really important um, and in terms of, you know, why we went to an 18-0 qualifier for final qualifying instead of the 36 for the U.S. Open, um, we also looked at, you know, what we do for our other amateur championships, what we do for our other open championships. Um, you know, that 36-0 qualifier uh, will really just be reserved for the U.S. Open and the U.S. Women's Open. And we felt like, um, you know, for those two open championships with them being the pinnacle um, of golf, you know, we feel like we can we can justify 36 hole qualifying. The timing also helps with them being a little bit earlier in the window. It's a little bit easier to um, secure sites. Whereas um, for US Amateur, again, um, going back to securing that 36 hole site, it's it's pretty difficult. Um, and with an 18 hole qualifier, you can afford weather delays, uh, room for a playoff, and um, you know it's similar to again what we do for our amateur championships, what the PGA Tour does for Monday qualifying and. Um, it's only 18 holes, but we felt like with, with the number of spots that will be there, it'll be pretty representative um, and make sure that, uh, again, we're, we're gonna, we feel like we'll get the right players in through qualifying year over year, even with just 18 holes. Yeah, and it seems like there's going to be so many avenues to get in through now with, with, the, with the increase in some of the wagger uh, spots and then the, 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 the 
various state and AGA amateur spots. It's not just going to come down to that, that, that qualifier at this point. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and, and there's obviously like, like any plan or any, um, anything that you put forth, there's obviously some, uh, downsides to it as well. I think that, um, you know, certainly one that we talked a lot about was, um, you know, folks that potentially, you know, would have played a USA amateur qualifier, you know, maybe 15, 20 miles from their house. They may have to travel a little bit farther. Um, and with two stages, potentially some players will have to, you know, make two trips instead of one. And certainly understand that the challenges with that. I think that, you know, as we looked at it and, and, and tried to assess what was the best for um, the championship and what was the best for the, the championship caliber players. So those top players um, that we want to make sure have the opportunity to play in the U.S. Amateur. Um, to your point, there's going to be a lot of pathways for those players. A lot of them will be locally exempt. Um, you know, a lot of them will come through the state AGA amateurs, um, you know, whether it's through WAGGER exemptions or other exemptions that we have. Um, there's going to be a lot of opportunities for those top players. And with that, there is still that openness factor. There may be some more travel involved, but any player that meets the handicap requirements will still have that opportunity to go to local qualifying, advance to final qualifying, and still play in the U.S. Amateur. So um, there's always a balance there. It's, it's um, you know, no system is ever perfect. And, um, you know, ultimately we're trying to, you know, we, we try to balance everything out and, and try to do what's best by the players, by the associations, and obviously by the championship to make sure that um, the U.S. Amateur, the U.S. Women's Amateur, our junior championships are best in class and strongest in class. Um, and so making sure that the players that we get year after year are um, representative of the strongest players, the best players um, in the country and in the world. What, what are the biggest challenges to getting this implemented and ready to go by 2024? Um, yeah, there's there's certainly um, you know some more work to be done. Obviously, we put forth um, our initial plan and, and the initial changes that will be forthcoming. Um, you know, some of the details that we still have to work through, um, you know, revolve around handicap index and, and figuring out what those handicap limits are going to be. Um, you know, I can probably definitively say that we are going to be lowering the handicap indexes across those four championships, whether that extends to maybe our other championships. Um, what those limits will be. I think we, we still have a lot of research to do there to, to figure that out and make sure that we're making the right changes there and, and how that can trickle down to, um, you know, throughout all our championships and even to our Ally Golf Association. So um, that's certainly a big piece of it. Um, but I think a lot of the, the, the legwork has been done. Um, again, it's been a year and a half now that we've uh, really been um, doing so much research, um, talking to players, talking to AGAs, trying to get as much feedback as we can. And, um, you know, ultimately we, we feel like we, we landed in the right spot. Um, I can probably say that, you know, after we go through the first year, there'll be more changes to come in terms of, you know, we, we probably didn't get everything right, right off the gate. Um, you know, anytime you put forth a, a change and, and a, a plan that involves, you know, a variety of different, um, you know, pieces to it. Um, you know, we, we try to make sure that we didn't miss anything, but, um, you know, <laughs> No, nothing is ever perfect in year one. So I think that um, we tried to be conservative with where we landed with all of our exemptions, with with the plan, recognizing that um, there probably will be some changes and additional changes. And, um, you know, we'll try to work through those and make sure that, um, you know, we continue to improve on it and um, do what's right, again, by by our players, by our associations, and by the championship. Yeah. Well, b before we let you go here, I wanted to uh, ask you a little bit about the U.S. Open. I know you had a chance to uh, make a site visit last week. Um, how's everything looking out there? I know that they've had some uh, weather challenges in California this year with all the rain and the atmospheric rivers and all that stuff. How's, how's LA Country Club looking and 
what what can fans expect uh, from that site this year? Yeah, it was uh, pretty amazing. So that was my first time on site at, at LA Country Club. Uh, I'll be part of the, the course setup team. Um, so setting hole locations, obviously tee locations, uh, fairway widths, rough heights, et cetera. Um, getting a chance to, to see LA Country Club for the first time, I was, I was blown away. And I think everyone that sees it on TV will be blown away. It's not a typical U.S. Open course. Um, you know, when you think of a typical U.S. Open course, you probably think of Wingfoot, Oakmont, uh, Pebble Beach, those kind of places. Um, it's very different than that, um, but I think it'll present a lot of the same challenges. Uh, there's some fairways that are 60, 70 yards wide, but with the, the cant in the fairways, with the slope in the fairways, the effective playing length or effective playing width uh, could be 15 yards, 10 yards wide. So it'll be very different in that sense. Um, the golf course itself um, was very wet when we were there last week. It was cold and rainy, but um, I think we're hopeful that by June, um, it'll certainly be dry, and, and the weather in June in LA is is typically pretty favorable to um, fast and firm conditions. So I think that that fans will be able to see um, a lot of the U.S. Open characteristics that they're used to seeing: uh, thick, rough, fast greens, firm conditions. I think that all of those will come out. Um, the look again will be be a little bit different. I think it'll be so unique that I think everyone will really. Um, enjoy it. Um, just the the vistas from standing on the first tee. Um, I mean, you can see downtown, you know, Beverly Hills, Century City. It's it's an incredible uh, piece of property, and um, just really excited to for me just to be a part of it and play a, play a small role in, in that. Um, but I think we're we're all excited to see what the reception will be. I think um, there's so many PGA Tour players that have never even been on site at LACC, so. Um, whereas a lot of the sites that we go to, they've played U.S. Opens before. Sometimes they play a tour event there every, every year. So, um, you know, LACC is just it's so different because so few people have played it. Other than the Walker Cup, we've really never had anything there. And so um, the opportunity to, to showcase that, I think the, the club is really excited. We're really excited. And, um, you know, we can hope for some dry weather. And I, I think if we do get that, it'll be uh, it'll prove to be a pretty challenging test. Awesome. Well, we're all looking forward to watching it on TV. And maybe, hey, we've got local qualifying for the uh, for the U.S. Open in May. Maybe one of our guys makes it through. That would be would be pretty awesome to see. But uh, yeah, absolutely. But- and um, you know, typically every year there's four or five guys that go from local qualifying to the championship. And um, certainly hope that uh, someone from Virginia is one of those four or five. Yeah. Well, Brent, thanks so much for joining us today and kind of giving us some insight into all these big changes. I think our members will re- really appreciate that. And uh, it was great to hear from you. Chris, thanks so much. Appreciate the time and uh, look forward to catching up again soon. Thanks to Brent for his time today. As you can tell, a lot of behind-the-scenes work went to making these qualifying changes, and we're excited to play our part at the VSGA in continuing to create elite amateur championships that will allow our golfers to play their way to the next level. That'll do it for this episode. Thanks for listening, and until next time, so long.